from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, May 4th. Today, why the India COVID surge has no end in sight. And a city transformed after 20 years of war. So, Joanna, we talked to you last week about the dire situation in India right now. What has changed since then? I'm sorry to say that not much has changed, except I would say the situation has worsened. Joanna Slater is the India bureau chief for The Post. India's Supreme Court says the country is facing a national emergency as its healthcare system buckles under a second wave of coronavirus patients. In the last few minutes, it's been confirmed that 2,600 people died in the last 24 hours. We do want to bring you an update about the situation in India. It is far more desperate there. COVID cases are rising uncontrollably, with more than 400,000 reported on Friday. The virus also claiming another 3,500 lives. Those numbers, though, keep in mind, that's just the official count. The true death toll is likely much higher. Some countries are restricting travel from India to try and curb the spread. That includes Australia, Canada, and the U.S. It's just a very, very difficult struggle. In Delhi, for instance, where where I am, it's a city of more than 17 million people. Right now, there are 55 intensive care beds available for COVID patients. That's 99% full, effectively full. So I think the situation in Delhi right now is that if you get severely ill, you really have very little confidence that you'll be able to get medical care in a timely way. There continues to be a shortage of oxygen in Delhi. It appeared to be getting slightly better for a couple of days, but then on Saturday again, uh, there was another fatal incident where a hospital ran out and 12 patients died as a result. So it's it's pretty mind-boggling and... and numbing, uh, to be to be perfectly honest. It's, it's, it's a difficult situation here at the moment. We've also seen reporting about the challenges of what to do with the bodies of people who have died and the fact that there is now a shortage of space in, in funeral homes and crematoriums to deal with that influx. H- how is that being handled? Well, the tradition here, mostly uh, the Hindu tradition, is to to cremate people after they die. So that would be what the majority of people are doing. And you're seeing scenes now in Delhi that really are without precedent. Cremation grounds are usually relatively quiet places where you may have four, five, six, seven cremations. Now you're seeing cremations of you know dozens of people at a time packed very close together in 
kind of chaotic scenes. And, and that really is, is, is not something people have ever experienced here before. There has been a lot of discussion about what brought on this new surge in India. People have talked about pandemic fatigue, which I think many of us can relate to. We've talked about the fact that there have been large festivals that have been going on with mass gatherings and the feeling in retrospect that those were probably not a good idea. But it sounds like there's also now questions about the government and the role that the government did or did not play in keeping the pandemic under control. Tell me more about that. Yes. So in India, you had this degree of of complacency where this government, like many governments, was keen to pat itself on the back. And it repeatedly chose self-congratulation over caution. And when cases fell to a very low level in January and February, the government was keen to foster the perception that, that the worst was, was behind us. And are people in India pointing fingers at Prime Minister Narendra Modi for his personal role in not taking this problem seriously enough? It was becoming clear in February that something was starting to change, that cases were starting to rise, and you were getting these outbreaks that appeared to show the influence of a variant that had a higher level of transmissibility. And then by March, cases were rising around the country. And I remember interviewing an epidemiologist in that moment, in kind of the middle of March, and she said, it's clear the tidal wave is coming. It would be stupid not to kind of prepare for it. So this is the moment, knowing what we know, having lived through everything we've lived through over this past year or more, that I think the government really had a choice. There was a massive Hindu religious festival scheduled to draw millions of people at the end of March. Starting at the end of March, it went ahead as planned. There were state elections in March and April with massive rallies. They went ahead as planned. There was this kind of cognitive dissonance. I remember one day in particular in early April where you had health officials giving a press conference telling people to remember COVID appropriate behavior to avoid crowds and to socially distance. And then you had the prime minister addressing massive crowded rallies. And honestly, seeing those images, you would be forgiven for thinking, how bad can it be? Well, you know, now now we know. You know, I remember back to the beginning of the pandemic when we heard stories about the lockdown in India, how seriously many people were taking it the way that it had upended daily life in India. Is that happening again? Is the country really on lockdown again at this point? There is no nationwide lockdown at the moment, but there are growing calls for the government to take that step. The government has been quite reluctant to do that for some of the reasons you mentioned, because the previous lockdown was so devastating and disruptive to millions of people across the country. However, you are seeing smaller scale lockdowns. So right now, Delhi, where I am, there is a lockdown. It's in entering its third week. Uh, in Maharashtra, there is also uh, a lockdown. Other states and cities are using different types of restrictions on, on movement. So there is this kind of patchwork type 
lockdown emerging, but but there is no nationwide lockdown as of now. The U.S. and other countries have promised to provide help to India to get through this, to get the number of COVID cases under control. But what does that help actually mean? Like, what, what does help look like in this scenario? Help could come in a number of forms now. We've talked about oxygen shortages France, for example, has sent oxygen-generating plants. Singapore has sent uh, oxygen tanks because the problem of shortages here is both a problem of supply and a problem of logistics. So there are are many pieces that could help. Uh, Countries have sent oxygen cylinders. They've sent medicines like remdesivir. They've sent testing kits. Uh, They've sent PPEs. So all, all of this helps. All of this is valuable, provided it is you know, distributed to the places that uh, need it in, in a timely way. And, and that's, that's something that we're watching very closely. Hmm. And how does this intersect with the vaccination campaign? Like, do people kind of see the ultimate solution here as like, well, we just have to keep vaccinating as many people as possible as quickly as possible and hope that that helps this go away? Or is that not really a realistic prospect at this point for how to stop this surge? Well, vaccination remains crucial, but you're not going to vaccinate your way out of this in the next month or two months or three months, what has to happen is it has to be, you know, a combination uh, of restrictions uh, on movement, of changes in behavior and changes in the way the the virus behaves. But of course, vaccinations must continue. Vaccinations need to continue as quickly as possible. It's just the scale at which those vaccinations would be required to blunt something like this is not really an option right now. Hmm. And of course, the other problem with that is that we know that India is a major provider of vaccines to much of the rest of the world and the developing world in particular. So is there a concern that what's happening in India will also make it more difficult for other countries to avoid this scenario because they will also not be able to vaccinate their populations? India, as you mentioned, has a robust uh, vaccine manufacturing capacity. And in many ways, the world was really depending on it uh, to vaccinate much of the developing world. And what we're seeing now is what happens when the country that, for various reasons, has become the the linchpin of the efforts to get vaccines to poor countries itself becomes home to the worst outbreak on the globe. And that has has knock-on effects. Obviously, uh, India has effectively stopped exporting vaccines. Uh, It stopped exporting vaccines at, at the end of March. And it's really quite hard to criticize that decision uh, given you know what is what is happening here now i mean i think there's there's some criticism of the government's decision to send 60 million vaccine doses outside india before the second wave hit uh, i think india to its great credit uh, exported or gave away some of the vaccines it made uh, unlike uh, a number of countries and and its neighbors, particularly small countries, have benefited. So I think 
There are going to be a lot of uh, decisions on, on the vaccine front that India is going to be thinking about now in retrospect, whether the vaccine rollout was too slow, whether the decision to send these doses overseas was the right one, whether the populations they targeted were right, whether there simply was a, a, just a lack of urgency uh, in the campaign overall. Uh, those are those are going to be questions that I think are, are going to be uh, mulled over here for, for a long time to come. Joanna Slater is the India Bureau Chief for The Post. The story was produced by Lena Mohammed. The U.S. has started to formally withdraw troops from Afghanistan. After 20 years of war, America is leaving behind a complicated legacy, politically, culturally, psychologically. And in Kabul, the capital, the U.S. is also leaving a physical legacy, a city that looks very different than how it did before. This story is about the center of Kabul, about the green zone, and about the legacy that America will leave behind when we leave Afghanistan after some 20 years of engagement there. And basically, it's about what this neighborhood now looks like and how instability and the security responses have changed urban life in that area. That is Phil Kennicott. He's the art and architecture critic at The Post. The Green Zone is the secure area where most of the foreign embassies and some of the Afghan government functions and some of the larger non-governmental organizations are located. It's essentially a fortified zone in the center of Kabul. Over the years, especially in the last decade or so, as there have been a series of bombings and attacks on foreign interests, embassies, compounds, and so on, in and around the Green Zone, there's been a kind of piecemeal, but eventually very consistent fortification of this area with blast walls, T-walls, guard towers, checkpoints. It's essentially a no-go zone for most ordinary Afghans in the middle of the capital. I've been covering Afghanistan for 10 years, more than 10 years. Photojournalist Lorenzo Tunioli photographed areas outside the green zone in Kabul to show how this fortified area has changed the city. And one of the elements that I noticed during this time is the evolution of the urban space and the difference that you see of what is Kabul now and what it was 10 years ago. The T-wall is really the, the fundamental security device. It's a wall that looks like an inverted T. It's wider at the base than it is at the top. They're often bolted or, or attached together, which increases their resistance to a blast. They can be enormously tall, and they create essentially a, you know impregnable fence, except to the, the most devastating attacks, around the embassy compounds and eventually around the perimeter of the green zone. These blast walls often get built right in the middle of residential neighborhoods and shopping districts. The experience of the city is definitely different from the people who live or interact with the inside of the green zone. 
and to the kind of uh, civilians who were were just outside. So, for example, the foreigners like me or the diplomats, they not often see the outside of the city because it's considered too dangerous to go outside the, the green zone. It also places pedestrian life off limits in these zones. And there is a quality of kind of foreign intervention such that people don't recognize their own city anymore. Streets that they once might have known, neighborhoods they might have walked through, these become no-go zones. And there isn't necessarily a lot of warning that this is going to happen. It's just one day you wake up and suddenly fundamental parts of your city are no longer accessible. I spoke with the Afghanistan head of the Aga Khan Trust, which is an organization that does, among other things, a lot of historic preservation and rebuilding work. And he had the perspective of looking at not just how it impacted Kabul, but how, for instance, it impacted Beirut over decades. And it's this quality of alienation and surreality. You don't feel in charge of your own city. You don't feel agency in relationship to your own city. Suddenly, you know, a city you might have known in a kind of unconscious, automatic way becomes foreign to you, even though it's your city. There are impacts on people on both sides of these walls. There is the sense that something that is a common, a public property, a city that is your city, is being taken away from you if you're on the outside of the walls. But then there's the simple fact that many people on the inside don't really communicate. They don't know the world outside. It creates a bubble. That is deeply problematic, especially if you consider that these are embassies there. And embassies are fundamentally about kind of knowing a foreign place, knowing a foreign world that you're trying to interact with. That bubble, I think, becomes corrosive over time, and it essentially creates two potentially incompatible understandings of the same place. Phil Kennicott is the art and architecture critic for The Post. Lorenzo Tugnoli is a photographer. Susanna George also contributed to this reporting and recorded the audio from Kabul. Ariel Plotnik produced this story. If you would like to see the photos of a changed Afghanistan, we'll put a link to the larger project in today's show notes and at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svernovsky and Ted Muldoon. You can learn about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.